When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. I need to have a very serious conversation with y'all. Something needs to change. You do not scare me. For 13 years, every October, you start sending in these stories. They're supposedly scary, right? It's like, really, you expect the hair on my neck to stand up or to have a tough time going to sleep or that, you know, they're not looping in my head every time I go out running while I'm putting this show together. Come on. That's never happened. You don't scare me. Seriously. Guy that's sending the story about the mysterious hitchhiker who shares all the details of his life while while you're driving on a mountain pass and then you go to visit his place of work and it turns out he's been dead for months. It's a mistaken identity, clearly. Clearly. Or the one from ten years ago when the forest crew found the freshly dug grave. And the next day there were two freshly dug graves. Like, come on. That's... That's just somebody getting topsoil for their garden way out in the backcountry, right? I mean, how is that scary? Come on. And and you backcountry skier, right, who found himself in the stand of trees littered with old child's toys and trinkets hanging from the branches. It's just so basic. It's totally explainable. I mean, that's that's got to be some Waldorf school field trip, you know, like some alternative education thing where they get kids out in the woods and they can make cool art projects. And look, it doesn't work. All those times you send me those stories, those stories, they just they just go in one eyeball and out the other with me. I don't ever think about your stories when I'm riding my local trail at 4.30 a.m. on a cold November morning and I almost run straight into an elderly man with no headlamp who just looked at me and kept walking. I mean, not weird. Don't try to tell me that's weird. I mean, he's probably researching bats four miles from the road in November and doesn't wear a headlight because he doesn't want to disturb them and he can count them because maybe he can... Thirteen years you've been doing this to me. Nerves of steel, this guy. Who's afraid? Not me. Not me. 
Not at all. Did... Did the lights just go out? Becca? Look, this is... It's, Becca! Today, we present our annual edition of Tales of Terror. We have three stories for you, and I will not lie. The terror is going to steadily mount. We have... Hang on. No, no, no. I'm not even going to tell you. That's right. Take that, listener. You have no idea what is about to happen. But that nagging dread, that feeling of terrible horror you're starting to feel, it's all too real. Welcome to the Dirtbag Diaries. I'm Fitzgerald Hall. Be afraid. Be very afraid. My story takes place in Squamish, BC. It is a climbing area just over the border in Canada. I was going there the first time in 2018 with my boyfriend Sheldon, and it was the first time he was meeting back up with um, his buddy who he hiked the PCT with, Skippy. When you drive into Squamish, it's it's breathtakingly stunning and you come around a corner and the chief is just there and it was our first time to Squamish I mean this place the lore alone is you know in the community it's the place to be it's got thousands and thousands of boulder problems and the forest itself is it's very still and so to be in a forest that just feels so old and established and untouched. I mean, the tree foliage is so high above you that it feels like you're stepping into a grand room where the tree trunks themselves are just pillars. And even if it's raining pretty heavily, you don't feel the rain as much. It's so dense. It's almost like a like a sound booth you know like sound does not move as far and it's really easy to get lost I mean everything looks the same it was our first night there we were setting up our tents just outside of the forest it's you know dusk time not quite dinner yet so we were like let's just check out some rock before we've got to make dinner We headed up the trail and then probably about a mile and a half turned left into the off trail into the forest. And we're just poking around, looking at interesting rocks. And you're just looking at everything. You're like, that's a boulder. That's a boulder. Like, I wonder if that's a boulder problem. Like, it's so overwhelming and easy to just, like, keep going from rock to rock to rock. And eventually we came across two boulders that were leaning up against each other, making this cave underneath them. We were all just like, wow. It just drew us in immediately to basically go check it out and see what's, what's going on over here. So we got to the mouth of the cave and 
we thought it was tall enough that you could even start a boulder problem within this cave and then climb out of it and then top it out on one of the sides of the cave. So we basically single filed into this cave looking for handholds. And we didn't have any headlights, any flashlights, anything like that. You know, there's enough light to see what we're seeing when we're outside of it. And we, you know, we're checking out the side thinking, oh, this is a cool rock, you know, look at these holds and all that stuff. And once we got back into it, probably about 10 feet, that's when, you know, the light starts to get dimmer. We're not able to see and that's when we're like, wow, this is kind of deep, too. So Sheldon gets out his flashlight on his phone and starts shining it on the wall, and all of our eyes fixate and lock in on this pool of light. We're probably about a foot or two away from the back of the cave at this point. And our eyes are fixated on this window of light that slowly pans to the back of the cave. As he does that, we all lock eyes with a girl. white dress, white skin, white hair. Just sitting there with her knees up to her chest and her arms around her knees staring at us. Our hearts dropped and we don't say anything to each other. At least three seconds, I felt like me and her, we were looking at each other. And I don't know how to describe that feeling other than you're climbing a pitch and you just skip the last bolt and, you know, you're trying to clip this, you know, one that you know if you don't clip this next beaner, it's you're going to take a whip. And, like, that's the only time that I've, like, my heart's, like, drop. Like, I'm about, <laughs> I'm about to go for a ride. Before I know it, the light is gone. Sheldon has left us. First one out of the cave. And my instincts just kick in and we all take off running. We 
beeline it back to camp as fast as we can, sprinting through the Squamish forest. I'm sure families are coming down off of the chief from their lovely, you know, evening hikes. And we are like frantically sprinting past these people, you know, thinking that our, you know, nylon tents are (laughs) safety at that point. And yeah, I'm sure we looked like complete crazy people to some visitors, but we all catch our breath and look at each other and are like, did you just see that? As we're sitting back at camp, eating our dinner, talking about this wild experience, we're trying to think of what this could possibly be and just rationalize it with each other and you know Sheldon is just not one to believe in the paranormals or anything like that I definitely think I'm more along the lines of someone to maybe believe in something like that as an option but I took it upon myself to do as much research as possible to see you know was this a camper was this a climber was this you know is this something that happens here? Is this, you know, something that could be explained in any which way, but it wasn't warm. You know, this person was there with no materials, no supplies, not even, we even tried to think of, you know, was that a reflective blanket we were looking at or something like a heat blanket and no it was white it was like bright white and just the most pale skin I have ever seen on a person the more we dug into it the less answers we had we have been back to Squamish a couple of times but we have never been back to the cave I would be interested to see if we can find it again it's there's a lot of rock out there My name is Nicole, and this is my tale of terror. I'm Brooke, and this is my tale of terror. So last year, I think it was last August, I had to go up to Washington for some personal stuff and was like, I'll make a climbing trip out of it. It'll be great. So I make my way up to Washington. My friend Maria and I were like, all right, well, we climbed up at Washington Pass for a day or two, had a good time together. And then we're like, cool, we could probably do something a little like bigger together. So we made plans to go into the pickets. They're honestly one of the most like inspiring mountain ranges in Washington. Super jagged, pointy, and like they have decent glaciers, and they're just alive. Like a lot of rock fall, very, like very loose. But yeah, they're no- notoriously kind of hard to get to. Most entrances to the pickets, there's different parts. The northern, the southern pickets have some sort of bushwhack to some degree. You're like third classing up some like mud and like roots, trying to get up to these different cross-country zones. There's no defined trail to get there. Um, and the pickets are known, like, orographically to kind of, like, suck in these weird weather systems 
as well. Um, there's a number of people in Washington who try to pull off bigger objectives up there and have been skunked for years because they can't find a weather window. So they kind of have this allure to them. They're pretty wild mountains. I think they're like the most wild mountains, at least in like the Cascades, if not like fully glaciated ones in the lower 48. The names in the pickets are like Mount Fury and Challenger. It's kind of an ominously named place. So Marie and I were stoked to do some like moderate alpine rock climbing. So we set our eyes on the east ridge of Inspiration Peak. We kept pushing our plans back because the weather was saying it'd be sunny in two days. And then it was like pushed back another day, pushed back another day. And then we finally got a window. We were like, sweet, if we hike in with all of the gear, camp, climb in the morning, hike out, it'll be fine. So we were planning to spend one night at a cross-country camping zone called Terra Basin and then do the approach across the glacier and climb the ridge and then come back down. We went to the Marble Mount Ranger Station and we asked about a permit, get a permit, get the lowdown, and they're like, there's a bear that's been out there. And we're like, we'll be fine, it's fine, we'll use a bear can, whatever. And then we get to the parking lot and there's like maybe two other cars there. And we're getting stoked to pack, like we're like trying to pack up the final bits of the group gear. And it just kind of feels like there's even though like the forecast initially said that it was going to be sunny that day and sunny the next day. Now it's saying it's going to be cloudy with a slight chance of rain that day, but sunny for sure the next day. And we're like, well, we might be going on like a skunk mission, but like we're just going to go anyways. And so we're like packing up and just like these clouds are kind of threatening. And it just felt a little like, I don't know, like un unsettling. And Marie and I are tight. She's awesome. But I don't think like we hadn't gone on like a big objective like together, like we had skied some stuff. So, yeah, I think we both like didn't really acknowledge too much about it other than like, oh, this is, feels a little eerie, but like, we we're like, oh, there's no reason to feel anything other than stoke. And yeah, we started the hike in and it was a mix of like the, it was like the cascade. Is it misting? Is it raining? Am I just this sweaty? So we were completely drenched by the time that we started the climb up towards like Terror Basin. We saw a group of three people hiking back out, but we didn't see anyone else on like the trail. We, we saw those folks like maybe two minutes in from the parking lot and they were like, oh, we just climbed like West McMillan Spire. It's like a, you know, your average like cascade, like I'm going mountaineering type of objective. And they were super stoked. And it was like, honestly, really nice to, to hear from them. But we were like, all right, we're gonna carry on with our day. And the more we hiked in, we just got like, I don't know. It just felt like a little like weird, like ominous. But I was like, sweet, this is the pickets. This is what it is. You like go up through the trees on the climber's trail. It's like steep-ish. You're like fourth class over some roots, third class mud. Then you pop out on this alpine bench. And it was beautiful, but also like the clouds had totally socked it in. Like there was, it was kind of raining the whole time. And there was like just like different bits of like rocks that were moving because you have to come down this like pretty loose like scree slope to get into the basin so we kind of were both really happy when we got to camp we're like sweet like cool we're here we made it and then we set up camp and we walked over towards the towards the objective because we we're like basically across a bench over to the glacier and it's still decently far away we're like okay maybe we want to scope out these granite slabs and we go over there and we get full freaking service on the slabs next to it, to Inspiration Peak, um, which was weird for both of us. And we're like, what the heck? And then there was another group of two that was there that had the same objective as us. And they were like, 
oh, like, you guys have service? Like, we don't have service. It's so strange. We're like, okay, this is just all weird. We check the weather. Chance of, like, the lightning storms, like, the morning. We're like, sweet, cool. We'll just see what happens. So then we go to bed. And we set our alarms to wake up the next day. Day two, we wake up. I didn't sleep super well, but that's not anything strange. I think everyone gets, like, everyone who climbs in the mountains a decent amount, like, probably at some point has felt the pre-climb, like, anxiety of, like, I'm going to go climb the thing tomorrow. I wonder how how it's going to go. And I think that's healthy, but there's something off. Like, it wasn't just that, and I didn't really know what. And we, like, look over there, and there's clouds, and they look like thunderclouds. Maria was like, what if we just went on a walk? And I was like, I just like see there. There's a thunderhead like directly over the mountain that we're gonna go. That we're aiming to go climb. It totally could have passed, but I was the one who was like, you know what? I don't feel great about like because it's like kind of a committing route and it's like a just like a long, not super complicated, but just like involved like descent. And we hadn't crossed the glacier, even though it looked in decent shape. And I just was like, eh, just like my intuition told me no and so I was like no and Maria's awesome and she's like okay and we like slept in ate some food and like hiked back out in the rain it didn't like storm storm on us but I can't speak for my partner but for me I definitely felt just a little like unsettled hiking out of the out of the mountains and down the path that we went maybe I felt unsettled because I hate bailing. Who doesn't hate bailing? But also, I just felt like, I don't know, the mountains were, like, saying no. And just, if you've ever seen, the, like, the skyline of the pickets, pretty imposing and, like, I don't know, they have a lot of character. But also, it instills, like, a healthy amount of, like, I respect you and, like, you're saying no right now and so I'm going to give myself wider margins later. Yeah, we get back to the car and Marie and I like split up our gear from our bags and I was like all right we'll have fun it was really nice to hang like it was nice to see you again and we went our separate ways. And then I went up to Washington Pass for a couple days and I come back down into service after climbing up there with my friend Hannah and check my I had voicemail and I hate voicemail and I never check it but that also led to me having a full voicemail box so I was like fine I'll listen to this like who called me and left me a voicemail and it was a message from a law enforcement ranger based out of the North Cascades the law enforcement ranger was asking if I had seen anyone that fit um, like a young male that was hiking out and he had a pretty almost identical itinerary like to ours and he had the exact same dates. He would have been hiking out of the Goodell Creek Trailhead the day that we were hiking out. He would have been coming out those same days and he had apparently gone missing and they had the aviation crew on it doing searches from the air. They had ground teams and they couldn't find Catrace of him. They couldn't, they couldn't, they had no idea. And so he was like, if you have any information or you saw him on your way in or or your way out, like we love any kind of help. And I was like, whoa, weird. Like, we didn't see a freaking soul the whole time, other than those folks who were already in camp and had gotten there quite a bit earlier than us. Yeah, I just felt 
I was like, ugh. Just like one of those icky feelings that you can't really put a finger on why you feel that way. I just was like, oh, that's like kind of, I don't know, spooky. So went on with went on with my life talked to maria maybe a few days afterwards she's like oh like they had called me too but she was in service when they called and she's like yeah like so so weird like so strange and i was like oh god is that what was going on when i was out there like where was this guy where is this guy it just like the north cascades i feel like has swallowed up more than a couple of people and it's so wet and moist and like like just poof into thin air After the break, more unexplained phenomenon. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. I'm Michael, and this is my tale of terror. So in March of this year, I was uh, running the Hone Quarry 40 Miler, which is a pretty cool race that happens every year um, that's in the George Washington National Forest. It's very beautiful, some really good ridge traversing. And uh, as part of trying to make ultra running, which is a completely selfish pursuit, more family oriented, I've tried to drag my family along. So on this occasion, we'd rented a cabin somewhere on the race area uh, down one of the sort of the darker hollows, it turns out. And uh, getting a, a family of two kids and my wife and the dog in the car and traveling a couple hours west of Washington, D.C., where we live, was is always fun. We'd arrived, we'd unpacked. It was in the middle of a sort of rainstorm because right before you do an ultra, it's got to rain a lot to make sure it's nice and muddy for you. And uh, it was a, a really nice cold rain uh, in March. And um, you know, so it's just on this tarmac road. It's a little cabin, very tight quarters, uh, but quite lovely. Um, the kids were arguing over who got the top bunk and the bottom bunk. We'd made dinner, we'd got everybody sort of semi-settled down. In the back of my mind, I'm a little bit nervous because we've got, uh, you know, I got to wake up 4.30 to make sure I'm there for the start of the race and check in the next morning. So trying to get everybody into a, into a rhythm, into a little bit of peace, I get everybody down. I, I take the dog out for a walk. So I've got a, a German Shepherd Husky mix, which is, you know, a medium-sized dog, usually not afraid of very much. But as soon as we open the door, uh, it's sort of raining and it's dark. and. If you're like me and you you live in a city but you recreate out in the woods, um, you forget that there's urban darkness and then there's non-urban darkness.
So I open the door and, and get out, and I realize that you know it's it's gone dark, and I can see you know the light on the porch behind me, and I can see the light about I want to say about 300 meters down the road for the next house that's there, and I, I sort of make a decision of like you know what I don't really need to go back and get my head torch. I don't want to use the batteries in case you know it runs out for tomorrow. So I'll just I'll just walk down this road. Um, I'm not gonna get lost. I'm not gonna fall in a ditch. This will be really easy. So dog and I start walking. There's trees on the right-hand side that goes up on a hill on a slope, and then it drops away on the left-hand side into the stream. So you can hear the stream noises. You can hear the water dripping from the trees. You can hear it's still raining a little bit. So you know, but it's really quiet. And about, I want to say it wasn't very long. It was probably a couple of minutes. So maybe a hundred meters down this road. I sort of see out of the corner of my eye on the right-hand side, about 30 meters up the hill, that there is a, um, that there's something white. And so I look over because I think it's, you know, a gas tank or something like that, and there's nothing there. And so my brain starts filling in. So every time I look at the road, uh, you know, I can see this thing in white, it's on the side. And my brain fills in and it tells me that there's this person who's standing there. And it's a guy in white with a white scraggly beard, but he was just sort of standing there watching. So this guy's standing on the right-hand side and I keep trying to look directly at him. And every time I look directly at him, I can't see him. But every time I look away, my brain keeps registering that there's something on the hillside up on the right. So I'm, I think, well, you know, your brain's playing tricks on you, whatever, that's okay. Um, so I keep walking, and I look down at the dog, and the dog, who is not afraid of very much, is is whimpering, and his ears are back, and his tail is down between his legs. He was looking around, trying to figure out where the danger was coming from. And it raised the, the hair on the back of my neck a little bit. And so I'm thinking, you know, maybe I need to cut this, this short a little bit. So I, I walk, I you know, keep on walking. He does his business, which means I can turn around and and very courageously speed walk back into the house. And so as I get back into the house, I don't bother looking over my shoulder. I just, you know, open the door, check the dog in. I jump in, close the door, stand there and it's a little bit to get a hold of myself because, you know, uh, I've dragged my wife and my two kids out to this remote cabin. I don't want to tell them that I'm kind of freaked out by something. So I just, you know, take it, don't mention it, don't say anything about it, take a deep breath and then go about the process that is getting to two younger children to go to bed in a strange house um, on short notice. So my daughter was falling asleep on her feet, but insisting she wasn't tired, had to get lifted into the upstairs bunk. My son was insisting he needed to read for another half an hour. There was a pile of dishes that needed doing, checked and rechecked everything, laid shoes out by the door, then decided to put them on the table because I was where the dog was gonna chew on them in the night and talk to my wife, you know, all of that stuff. And then lay down and thought the bed's lumpy. I hope it doesn't mess up my back for tomorrow. My biggest worry was that I wasn't going to sleep early enough in order to make up for the loss of sleep, waking up super early so that I was in good shape to run the next day. And I wasn't super worried about something that my brain had told me was there that clearly couldn't be there, shouldn't be there. You know, it's unlikely that a man, an elderly man in white would be standing in the trees watching down on me. And so I just thought, eh, no problem. And, you know, just go to sleep and it starts raining. So, you know, it's, you know, intermittent raining, the roof's a, you know, zinc or tin or something, so it makes a lot of noise. And I go to sleep, and then the next thing I know, my daughter is standing over me. It's Dada. Dada, I have a bad dream. Can I come in with you guys? The drill is 
I sit up, I go with her, I lie down with her, I talk to her about it. And so I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I've got this, this child in this strange bunk bed, we crawl up into the top, um, there's about three inches of space between the top bunk and the ceiling, and so it's kind of this little squeeze space. So it's perfect for a little eight-year-old girl to crawl into. It's very hard for bigger me to get into. So when I took her back to bed, I picked her up, I slid her in there, uh, put her under the covers, and then I had to sort of squirm into this thing. So we're lying down in this coffin, and, and she's sort of like, oh, I had a nightmare. And so I'm like, okay, you know, normal drill. She's tucked into my arm. I'm like, okay, honey, why don't you tell me a little bit about, you know, tell me, why don't you tell me about your nightmare? And she says, yeah, that I, I had a dream. There's a guy, there's a man in white and he has a star in his chest and he's standing outside the door because he wants to kill you and i immediately am completely and utterly wide awake and so i i, I go well you know honey yeah don't worry it's just a dream and so i i sort of sit there thinking about how soon can i get out of this bed because i'm going to go and i'm going to f thing up you do not invade my daughter's dreams this is not okay so i'm sort of laying there very quietly doing my my important dad thing and not alarming anybody else and and then uh so she goes to sleep i slide out of the bed make sure that she's not waking up i look around the house to make sure everybody's asleep and quiet and then i go into the kitchen and i get uh, open the salt shaker get salt in my left hand and get the biggest knife out of the butcher block in my right hand turn the doorknob and step out into the rain in the darkness and I'm just sort of sitting there under the awning and the, the sound of the rain hitting the thing. Saying, you know, okay, come on, let's do this. If this is what you want, let's go. Stood there for a couple minutes, nothing happened. So it's all right, you know, closed the door, locked it, went back, you know, lay down, and uh, I went to sleep in another two or three minutes. Um, but all night, something was banging on the roof trying to get in. And so when I woke up in the morning, I said, you know, my, my wife's like, hey, did you hear that? All night, something was like scratching on the roof and something was banging on the roof and scratching on the doors. And, and like, you didn't hear that at all? And I was like, no, absolutely not. And got up and went and go, ran, my, ran my 40 miles and came back and absolutely never mentioned it to anybody. Thank you, Nicole, Brooke, and Michael for terrorizing me. Seriously. Come on. That is a year's worth of bad dreams there. <sighs> Thanks for that. Anyway, music today from Kai Angle, Aiden Baker, and David Beard. The tracks are courtesy of Artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Andrew Burton, Lauren Delaney Miller, Ashley Langholz, Becca Call, and me, Fitzka Hall. Team effort. So much fun. Thank you, everyone, for contributing. Illustration by Walker Call. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz, and you've been listening to Dirtbag Diaries. 
Thanks for tuning in. And happy Halloween.